to the Winter Palace Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. It's episode 99, so we're going to talk about female spies. And to do that, we're happy to welcome back to the show John Champion of the Mission Log Podcast and other shows. We're going to be talking about Agent 99, Mrs. Peel, April Dancer, a ton of Bond women, and then at the end, some Star Trek talk. Thanks for listening. Episode 100 is up next, and we've been working on a special guest for literally years, so hopefully they will be here next time. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. You're a foreign spy who wants to come in from the cold, and you've never been uncovered. You're so self-controlled, but when they find your body floating down the Rhine, that's a lesson don't go messing with. 99. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. It's episode 99, so we either had to talk about hockey or we had to talk about female spies, and we chose the latter. To help us, we are happy to welcome back to the show John Champion from Mission Log and many other podcasts. And I guess today, while we may get to track at the end, you have you, you have your fedora on, I guess, today. Mm, yeah, I could. I could. Yeah, I, and I have a few. So, yes. But I guess, since this is episode 99 and we're talking about female spies, we should start with 99, Barbara Felden from Get Smart. And I was, it's funny, I was watching, I don't know if I knew this or not, I was watching some of the, some clips on YouTube, and apparently, I don't know if Buck Henry said this or Leonard Stern said this, but apparently, they originally wanted to give her, have her be 69, Oh. And they, they and they decided no, we probably can't get away with that. So they made her ninety nine, which yeah. which I think is actually good because that means she's probably the best control agent if she's ninety nine. I I think so. So I, I was wondering about that too, and like uh, uh well the the joke being you know Maxwell Smart is eighty six, so that's like you know diner shorthand for you know cut this from the order you know 86 it you, you trash it you get rid of it so i i thought that was a, a clever little joke uh and then i looked uh i had forgotten how many later uh not not spinoffs but but like reboots reunions that kind of thing of get smart and they had agent 66 was the 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 new young uh woman agent who was going to be on there and i wondered like if they were tipping their hat a little bit to say like well she's two-thirds as good as 99 maybe we were going to do that 69 joke but we're still not going to i'm i'm glad they didn't go there no i i just uh would have assumed that it's just 99 upside down sort of, which oh, is yeah, actually yeah, there you go you know which yeah. is actually you know since we joked about the hockey thing that you know Mario Lemieux became 66 because it was 99 up, you know, as his tribute to Gretzky. So in a way, that's oh, sort of yeah. the same. The same is that was that when Elaine Hendricks was on the reboot, or was that something else? Ooh, that yeah, I I, I want to say that's right. I yeah yeah I, I don't have all my my details in order. I just no, it's that. just I yeah I yeah. only briefly watch yeah. some of that because i had forgotten that i watched like part of the pilot and i guess in that you know for people that don't remember there was a short-lived fox reboot of get smart in the 90s and right. um 
Max was now head of control in 99 is his wife, but she's also a congresswoman and she's like in charge of the intelligence committee. So she's actually like in charge of control, I guess, as it were. Max is the head of control. And then right. it's funny now when you right. watch it that Andy Dick, it was their son, yes. their sort of inept yes. son. And then Elaine Hendricks, who I'm yes. sure nerds like us remember, was on Briscoe yeah. County. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, that yeah. and among, you know, I don't remember who else they may have had dotted throughout the guest star list. But it's it's funny now when you watch that show and you're like, hey, I actually recognize the people that were sort of the quote unquote unknowns. Even yeah. if it is sort even if they're sort of genre famous, not necessarily like regular general public famous, I guess. Right. Right. Man, I had oh Andy Dick, I I had forgotten about that. What a what an interesting choice to, <laughs> to to throw into Get Smart. I don't know that that would be my casting necessarily. I like Andy Dick. I think he's funny when when he's good. Like you know when, when he's good, he's really awesome. Um, but yeah, if I were casting that show, I don't know if that would be my first choice. Uh, Although it didn't it's... last. Yeah. No, yeah, well, the thing that I saw said basically it was a it was a springtime replacement, and they sort of yeah. There's only yeah. like five or six, and they said we kind of knew this was only going to be five or six episodes, so it wasn't designed to last. It was just like a fill-in. Right, right, and that makes sense. Yeah, um, but you know, like anything, I'm I'm sure that if you do something like that, you hope that it has legs and it sticks around a little bit. Uh, maybe they're hoping that it could be a uh, I, you know, like a, a feature that comes back every now and then, like a little mini series that runs once every couple of years or so. Uh, but man, yeah, Andy Dick. And, and I do like that Get Smart had, you know, I, I think now we tend to not necessarily hold it in as high esteem. It, it's not as well remembered as a lot of other stuff from that, you know, peak. Uh, spy craze of the 60s but that was a hot show at the time and um, certainly little things that stayed in the pop culture uh, like Star Trek, like Twilight Zone, a lot of stuff where even if people haven't seen the show they know the references so when somebody you know makes a joke about a phone being in a shoe or whatever like it comes from that and, uh, and we you know the, the cone of silence I think people understand that idea even if they've never seen it actually you know on screen in uh, in an episode of get smart but they did keep trying to bring that back and and you know i think for not totally misguided reasons i i think you know a good solid spy parody is uh is kind of timeless well i think you and i are roughly the same age so i remember being a kid and when the nude bomb came out, which I think mm -hmm. has been, I think has been, has been renamed over the years. I don't think it's like technically called the nude bomb anymore. It may, cause there was like get smart yeah. returns or something like that. But I think that was a TV movie, but yep. the, but yeah, nude bomb was like 79, 80, 81, something like that. I think, yeah. cause I remember being a kid and seeing it in the theater. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. See, I, I, I didn't see it. it. It came out in 1980. I, I didn't see it in the theater, but I, I remember that it was a thing. And I remember that there was some excitement about it. And, you know, among my eight-year-old friends, 
<laughs> you know, sort of like snickering, like, ooh, it's a movie called The Nude Bomb. What, what, what is this? It must be something really dirty, you know, but it, it's just it, it's just a get smart movie, you know, and I don't think it did particularly well. No, I. Yeah, I can't I can't really remember. The only thing I really remember about it is the villain who I don't recall off the top of my head was it was some sort of like evil fashion designer. And he had a nylon stocking over his head and he wore thimbles on his fingers. (laughs) But I I mean, it's funny that like I can remember that image. Yeah, yeah. But uh Yeah, that that to this day I have not seen that, but I just I remember that sticking out in my head as being a thing that was happening in 1980. Like I remember newspaper ads for it. I remember friends talking about it, and probably because you know kids my age, like their parents had grown up watching the nude bomb or had grown up watching uh, Get Smart, so they were well familiar with the characters. And and it's funny, I'm I'm just looking at the listing for it here. And yeah, you bring back that original writing team. You got Mel Brooks, Buck Henry, um, and, and music by Lalo Schifrin. And, and it, like, they're doing all the right thing. Like, they're putting all the right people in place. Um, and it, it's just, it did not fly. But who's missing from this? And that is Barbara Feldon as Agent 99. Not in the cast of this movie. Sylvia Crystal is there as Agent 34, and uh, she, of course, uh, infamously from the Emmanuel movies uh, of the 1970s and and early 80s. Uh, But, yeah, we're just egregiously missing uh, Barbara Feldon. Shocked. Yeah, and it's funny, too, that you would cast sort of a notorious sex symbol as his female interest but, you know, not – again, it's, yeah, one person makes all the difference. And it's sort of like, you know, while Barbara Feldon was certainly sexy on that show, I mean, she was she was certainly like the smart – I mean, she was the straight woman, but she was also like the smart – Actually, it's funny, you know, since we're talking about Don Adams, like it's a funny sort of parallel to, you know, again, people our age, remember Inspector Gadget. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you have the smart female character. I mean, there it's his niece. Here it's his his partner, Mm -hmm. you know, to play off of. But, yeah, it's funny when you watch episodes, and I noticed I saw a clip of her talking about this, like how for the mid-60s, even for television, how very fashion-forward 99 was on that show. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. yeah, no, I, I was going to say, you know, the, the smart thing with uh, Get Smart was that they made Agent 99 super capable. Um, she's she she's like uh, approachable. She's sort of the girl next door. She's also smarter than 86. <laughs> you know, that just that, that goes without saying. Uh, but they, they didn't play up any kind of like manufactured sexual tension or anything with her, which is good uh, because I think that would have been very distracting from the show overall. I feel like by the time they got to 1980 and they got to this movie, it just felt like, uh, you know what? It's a bigger budget. It's a movie that presumably people who have no history with the show are also going to come see. Uh, Just play up the sex appeal. We don't know what else to do. Maybe that'll get more more eyeballs on the screen. And it's funny too how that 
how Get Smart did eventually succumb to like the sitcom tropes where you know by the third or fourth season they're now married, they eventually mm-hmm. have twins. So it's like they're ticking all the boxes of what to do with a sitcom when it starts to lag, and then people may not remember that by its by the last season it actually switched networks because it had become either unsuccessful or unprofitable. And yeah. it's funny too when you it's when you watch the show in reruns, it's like if you're like me as a, a TV junkie that you can tell sometimes what episode a show is going to be by the credits. You certainly know that with Star Trek, you know by what color the the yeah. names are, what season it is. And you right. know, you get to get smart and you get to the season when it jumps to CBS and it has like the entirely different opening with kind of jazzy new music and you're like Oh, this is a later one. Like when you yeah. when you when you when you're watching as a kid, even then you're like, oh, this is. I don't remember. You know, I don't know off. The, this isn't a show that I know off the top of my head what episode is from what season. Yeah. But you know, I I can bet probably by the last season, all the ones that we remember as the great episodes are probably not in that last season. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that exactly, and that that goes with just a lot of shows that, like you, you're very aptly pointing out, they they go on for a little too long, and the writers sort of run out of ideas and think, well, we we just sort of explore the relationship a little bit, or if they don't do that, it just kind of becomes stagnant and jokey. I mean, one of my favorite spy shows is uh, uh, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., and that show shifts dramatically between seasons, where, you know, first season, black and white, deadly serious. Um, You've got, I think, some of the best directors working during that season. Second season, they go to color. They're finding their uh, balance a little better, where you've got the, the two, Napoleon and Ilya, working together better. Uh, they're starting to get a little flashier, a little more gadgety, a little more James Bond. Third season, just, again, a totally different turn. You go to broad comedy. They're like, well, Batman was popular. Let's do that, (laughs) you know? And then fourth season, they try to return to seriousness. But again, each season, you know, the music changes, and you know when you hear the worst version of the theme song, Oh, we're in season four again, and they just didn't know where to go with that show. So uh, it's it's a shame. Yeah. And speaking of Uncle, since we'll start segue into uh, other people, um, Mm -hmm. Man from Uncle was a popular enough, and B uh, wanted to appeal to a different demographic, and we get the girl from Uncle, which was Stephanie Powers as with the wonderfully sixty spy name April Dancer. Yes, yes, which I can't remember off the top of my head if April Dancer was another name that came from Ian Fleming or some outside source, because he he famously gave the producers Napoleon Solo as the the name of their head spy. Um, And then uh, I want to say it was Marianne Mobley who played April Dancer in the Man from U.N.C.L.E. episode, that was the backdoor pilot for the girl from uncle it was her and uh norman fell as mark slate and then by the time they went to series it was stephanie powers and uh noel harrison and um look not to slight the cast 
and not to slight the idea because I think it's a great idea to do that show. They were both fine, and you have uh, you you maintain Leo G. Carroll from The Man from Uncle as uh, Mr. Waverly giving the assignments. That show, Girl from Uncle is just a poorly made show. It was not good. And every now and then, like, like I'll go back and I'll rewatch certain episodes of The Man from Uncle or, or maybe watch one that I've never seen before and, and kind of rediscover that show. And it's a, a series of varying quality. And you find some amazing episodes. You find some not so good episodes. But it does very well on the... Uh, the charm and chemistry of its lead actors and and some of the the better writing uh, of the time for a show like that. And then I'll go watch The Girl from Uncle and think like, well, they can't be that bad. It was the same production team. It, it can't. Maybe I'm misremembering this show. Nope, it's not a good show. And it's too bad because mid 1960s, this would have been an ideal time to have a successful series with a woman in the lead uh, doing the same cool action hero spy stuff from week to week that the guys were doing. So it's a shame that that show wasn't better than it was. It only lasted one season. It, it, it like All the potential was there for it to be a success, and it just wasn't. It's funny. I was watching a couple uncle episodes actually i was i was trying to mine uh, a title because i i was having trouble coming up with what to actually call this episode mm -hmm. and i was gonna i originally was gonna i was gonna call it like the something something affair since that's oh, how sure. man from uncle episodes are named yeah. and i was like oh well we're doing female spies i'll just call it the matahari affair yeah. Only to find out there actually is a Man from Uncle episode yes. called yes. the Matahari Affair, and then I start looking at all at some other Uncle titles, mm -hmm. and I see one called, and I, love the, and I don't remember this one, called the Girls of Navarone, as oh, a yeah. as a pun on the, the Guns of Navarone. Guns of Navarone, yeah, yeah. And that's then a I good look, episode. and yeah. I look. Well, you know what's funny is, so I, I looked it up, and it just said. You know, the plot, blah, 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 blah. And then it said Sharon Tate. Yeah. And I'm like, mm -hmm. okay. So then I start watching the episode, and there's like three female guest stars listed. Mm -hmm. She's not one of them. Right. So I go to the end, and it's like she's like the fourth other credit as therapist. Yeah. And then I go back and try and watch it again, and I'm like, oh, there she is. Because the problem with this episode is it's full a very attractive blondes, all with that 60s haircut, and it's kind of hard to tell them all apart in that. I mean, it's kind of the point of the episode, but it's like, right, right. unless you are looking for Sharon Tate, you wouldn't necessarily immediately spot her. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that was shot, I can't remember if it's season one that episode is. If it's season two, it's early. Well, yeah, uh, I'll just say it's, it's a black and white episode. Oh, so. okay, yeah, it is season one. There we go. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of her in color. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, it, it is an early episode, and that is just right before her star ascends. I mean, it, it so she's not the name guest star that she would be literally just like months later, you know? 
Um, but there are some great still shots from that episode. I, I tend to think about those more than the episode itself. There, there are some great shots of everybody on set. And, um, yeah, you know, of course, my, my, my biggest nightmare is just to be, you know, trapped in a, uh, in a mansion with all these gorgeous 1960s dangerous blondes. That, that sounds like absolute torture to me. Um, but no, it, it's a really good episode. So uh, I, I would say if you're unfamiliar with Man from Uncle, that would be a good one to check out. And, uh, if, and of course, if you're a, a Star Trek fan, the Project Strigas affair. So you have Shatner and Nimoy. And before we completely move away from Uncle, there is an ep- a season one, I think, because it's in black and white, that does guest star Barbara Felton. Mm-hmm. Yes. So to yeah. tie both of those together. Yeah, and, and she's quite good in it, too. She... she um, she plays uh, uh, somebody working at Uncle, and she's sort of the the foil, the innocent, which they really stuck to that as part of the formula during the first season, not so much in the later seasons, um, who is sent on a mission, but it's not really a mission, but she thinks it's a mission uh, for Mr. Waverly. So a very fun episode, so definitely check those out. And, of course, we could not go without uh, talking about female spies on television with someone who Barbara Felden also admitted that she wanted her character to be like. Mm-hmm. And that's Diana Rigg as Mrs. Peel in the Avengers, who was probably, I, th- I would think, the prototype. Fe- you know, when you think of a female spy, pro- especially of that era, it's probably going to be Mrs. Peel number one, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, I mean... She really is like if you think about everything that the the girl from Uncle could have become, like that's really what you need is you need a breakout character like Emma Peel, and of course the Avengers had been on before Diana Rigg, and you had another, uh, and we'll we'll talk about that in a second. You had another uh, co-star along with uh, you know John Steed played by Patrick McNee, so. But she, by by all rights, was like this huge breakout phenomenon from that show because she was tough. She was sexy. They didn't overplay the flirtation between the two. So it, it wasn't like building a soap opera around the Avengers the way that a lot of shows, again, as we discussed, fall into that trap. So that that should have been the model upon which Girl from Uncle was built. But it wasn't. But that's okay. They got, in my estimation, they got everything right on the Avengers. That show is infinitely stylish. It is, it's fun without being childish, you know? And it's an adult show without being dry and boring. I think they hit exactly all the right levels in there. Because they very wisely, uh, like everybody at the time, you know, they they wanted to do James Bond on TV. So cool. They uh, they they had the the talent and the ability to pull it off. Well, to me, I think one of the keys to that show, which people I think sometimes just sort of gloss over, is that she's Mrs. Peel. She's mm-hmm. her husband exists somewhere. I think he's like an archaeologist or an anthropologist or something like that. Mm-hmm. So he's never there. Like right. I don't think he, I don't think he ever sort of quote unquote appears until the end. I think yeah. like in the last episode when she gives up being a spy to be with him or something to that effect. So really that you get this flirt, you know, kind of playfulness with with her and 
John Steed all throughout her era of the show. But you sort of know it's never really going to go anywhere Mm -hmm. because she's married. So they can afford to be, you know, flirtatious because we know it's not going to go anywhere. And, you know, that way they can joke and she can be as sexy as she wants without, you know, going anywhere. And like we, we talked about the fashion, certainly, you know, her cat suit is famous. And then, you know, you've got a couple famous episodes with a particular wardrobe, including the the touch of brimstone episode where she's in sort of the, I, I, well, I don't want to say dominatrix outfit, but she's wearing like the bustier and the big, the, the, oh, right. the, yeah, the yeah, outfit yeah. that Chris Claremont yeah. would, or Chris Claremont and John Byrne would later model like, Emma Frost and the uh, Phoenix after in the X-Men in the, in the seventies yeah. Yeah. because those guys are both British, you know, TV junkies. And so that's where they kind of got that from, you know, right. and, and all that other stuff. And yeah, yeah. That, like you said, it's such a great show now, even in hindsight where there's plenty of action, but it, it never really usually takes itself too seriously. I mean, I watched one the other day. I don't know if you remember this one. But it's basically like a spoof of Sunset Boulevard. Oh, no way. Where uh, there's a guy that's supposed to be Eric Von Stroheim, and then there's an older actress who's supposed to be Gloria Swanson. And then there's another guy who's a, who's an older actor who is, I think we've talked about on the show before, is Jason Weingard, who we know from Detective S and Jason King. Is, uh, is, Peter Peter Weingard. Peter Weingard. Yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know why? Because because he's Jason Weingard. He's Jason, it, yeah. In but no, show. but in the X Men that I was just talking about, when oh, okay. when when they draw a character that looks like him, his name is Jason Weingard. <laughs> so I, I I I do that. I conflate that sometimes. No, but I, I, uh, easy mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so they're in this episode, and it's like this big sort of spoof where they trap Mrs. Peel on this abandoned movie set. And there's all kind of meta jokes and, you know, like they're walking from set to set and somebody's dressed as a cowboy and then somebody's dressed as like a Roman emperor and somebody's dressed as a vampire. And, and then you get to the end and they're, they're like in Steve's flat or something. And they're like, do you want to go to the movies? And they're rattling off all these names of movies. Do you want to see? And then she's like, let's just stay in. And she's like, okay, let's go to my apartment. And she stands up and she kicks the wall of the set down. From Steve, so she just walks from Steed's apartment to the set for her apartment, and then they both walk over, and the episode ends. Oh, that's cool. But that's it's like a—I've not seen that episode. That's a that's very awesome. yeah. The one I saw that one and the one I watched, which is another, I guess, famous parody one, where it's like it's the Batman parody, where there's a a superhero that's sort of like a giant bird. I mean, I guess oh, he's, yes, he, or yes. he's, an, he's an eagle. Or somebody yeah. like that, and it turns out, and he, he's killing off the people who have like wronged the the creator. So there's all sorts of fun meta stuff, and you get yeah. to this fight at the end, and one of the artists, one of the uh, creators, is like a pop artist, and so they're fighting, and they're picking up art and hitting him over the head, and of course, it, the art is like Batman sound effects. Right. <laughs> so it's, yes. but like we said. Yeah. It's a show that can be serious, but can be very silly at the same time. 
And, and the thing is, the Avengers could get away with it because one of the hallmarks of that show is its own sort of surreal sense of place. You know, uh, the, the Avengers movie that came out, the one with uh, Uma Thurman, Ray Fiennes, and uh, the late Sean Connery, uh, it, not a great movie, but I, I'll hand it to them in some respect that part of what they were going for was the style, and and they got it that, like, their version of England in the Avengers is not really real-life our England. Like, the Bond movies now are very firmly set in, like, okay, yes, this is actual London, and, and there is MI6 headquarters, that bizarre-looking building <laughs> as it is, you know. It's very literal, um, even though the stories are fantastical. Uh, the Avengers was this kind of strange parallel universe where these surreal things happen, that, that uh, characters are dressed in strange ways, the streets are very quiet, um, and I think uh, partly that is a production reality that, uh, like, The Prisoner also aped, uh, even though they're mostly out in Port Myron, uh, the, the scenes that were in London, everything is super quiet, the streets are empty. Yes, that's how you film a show, but it also lends this sort of strange, otherworldly feel to the action. And the Avengers took good advantage of that by just letting it exist in its own, uh, I would say, like parallel universe. So you can get away with things. And when they do do humor, when they do do something surreal, you just sort of go with it. And you're not trying to do the calculation in your head to say, like, well, wait, where, where does this exist in, in reality? It doesn't matter. The Avengers occupies its own space. And I think they use that to great effect in the show. Yeah, it's definitely sort of more out there than if you compare it to Danger Man, which is on at the same time, mm -hmm. which is very sort of grounded, because yep. that's what Patrick Meunier wanted, as opposed yep. to the Avengers. And, of course, there's also black and white versus color and all these other kind of things. But, yeah, those are like two interesting contrasts to run along at the same time. And, of course, famously, he did not want John Drake to have a love interest on that show. Yeah. So there's really never that I can recall. I mean, there may be like the occasional guest star, like female spy, but I really don't, I can't recall any of them off the top of my head because that's not what the show was. Yeah, and the thing about Danger Man is that, you know, Patrick McGowan kept it, it's really tight. You're, you're talking about well, short episodes. The action is just super quick and it's really focused. So, you know, they'll do a whole episode that takes place in like, one or two settings and and you just zip right through the story i i think he did such a good job of keeping that as you know grounded is the perfect word to say that then it was time to do something very surreal when they got to the prisoner you know you kind of take the best of that groundedness uh, where is this character actually coming from and the best of this alternate universe that this sort of spy genre occupies like the Avengers, like some of the early bond, uh, you know, where you have just crazy nonsense, like, uh, you know, dragon tanks and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, nuclear power reactors in your backyard. Well, since we are going to get into eventually, we might as well get to bond now. And 
I don't know. Are we still allowed to call them Bond girls? Is that still? Uh... Well, I, I, I say I, I think it's about time that we say Bond women, the women of Bond, because, you know, they, they are adults. <laughs> Let's, uh, you know, uh, I think we should at least recognize that. So but but Bond, I do, you know, I actually own a book called James Bond's Girls. So, it, it you know, I think it came out in like maybe the late. 80s maybe the early 90s so it's right on the cusp there of just sort of thinking like eh, maybe, maybe this isn't totally appropriate <laughs> you know? i will at least at least for now say that like the wikipedia actually article is actually still called bond girls although it does say in 2021 you know there's probably not yeah. a an except but it's but it's sort of a i guess a cultural shortcut but anyway it is, yeah, and I think that is fair, just like Bond Girls, like that, as a phrase, like that is its own thing. Um, but it, it just, it feels a little weird and dated saying that now, you know. So the question is, I guess we'll do this sort of in a in a quick manner. Yeah. If you, who, I don't know if you want to say who is your favorite of them, or like, which one do you think is the best written? Who like if you could only watch one film that stars that woman, who would you what would you pick, I guess? And right. is necessarily I... the best are the best Bond women in the best Bond movies or is are they not necessarily mutually exclusive? Uh, those are good questions. And I, I think the thing about the Bond women, by the way, they, they keep teasing this idea of we need to have a female James Bond. We need to do a spinoff. And they attempted to do that. Well, they, they said they were going to do that with Jinx, with uh, Halle Berry in Die Another Day. Uh, but that movie was awful. And um, and I, look, Halle Berry is a fine actor, but that was not her best work. So I'm glad we didn't go that direction. But I do think, yes, the, the world could use a female-led uh, big budget tentpole spy series the way we have James Bond. Um, I tend to go for the dark horse candidates when it comes to Bond. I think there are a lot of the, the big obvious Bond women who are great. Um, look, I, I just, uh, like, like I was saying, uh, how it would be my biggest nightmare to be trapped in a Man from Uncle episode full of gorgeous 60s uh, blonde uh, spy women. It would also be my nightmare to be, you know, trapped in the parallel universe of gorgeous Bond women, too. They're all great. I tend, though, like I said, to go for the less obvious candidates. So I love um, Isabella Skorupko in GoldenEye. And I think that she is an overlooked, uh, capable Bond woman. Uh, I think she's really cool and had a lot more to offer than, than we got out of that movie. I love uh, Dr. Uh, yes, yes, it's a, uh, uh, a, a risque name, and they knew it at the time, Dr. Holly Goodhead in Moonraker. I think Lois Childs is fabulous, and I would have loved to have seen more of her. And I love Barbara Bach in The Spy Who Loved Me, and we were almost getting there with the woman who is a spy who can take on Bond, um, and we didn't quite get there. But I think she's great, and I love the setup of her being a Soviet agent 
and uh, knowing about Bond's gadgets before he does, <laughs> you know, it's just a nice little thing to have in uh, to have in those movies. Um, so I, I think those are three who I feel like are less celebrated than they should be. Um, and I think the ones who we tend to kind of leave behind, maybe we leave behind for a reason. Denise Richards as Dr. Christmas Jones. I don't need any more of that in my life, but I will give her her due and say that uh, uh, when she was in, oh, what was it? Undercover Brother as the white she-devil, hilarious and great. <laughs> so more of that, less of Dr. Christmas Jones. Well, I think one of the problems is that for the first few, although with a, a notable exception, you have the Bond formula was let's cast uh, a European model who may or may not be the most uh, experienced actress as mm -hmm. the love interest. And so, you you know, some of the early ones, like, you know, I love From Rush With Love. Sure. But you know, um, Tatiana Romanova is not like the most fleshed out, greatest. I mean, she's she's almost like a Doctor Who companion of that era. You know, she spends yeah. a lot of the movie just sort of following around Sean Connery holding his hand. Yeah. I mean, she's sort of there to be. She's more an object than. I mean, well, the whole plot is sort of built around them using her as a trap to try and kill Bond, so it's not like she's really even doesn't have her own motivation for being in the plot, she's just there you know, Thunder, you know Thunderball slash Never Say Never Again, you know, you've kind of got the niece daughter of the evil bad guy who he falls for and you know, it's not until you start, maybe until you, well I mean there's Pussy Galore who is sort of like an, an exception to a lot of the, the rules of the Bond women. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll say this. I, I've said it before on other podcasts, like on 602 Club and other places that I've talked about the spy genre. I feel like every few years or, or maybe like every decade, like somehow the, the press gets on the story about it's a whole new kind of Bond girl. And this time the you know the the uh bond's foil the bond woman it, it is really bond's equal and she's tough and she's a, and i'm like we've been doing this since the 60s okay and yes there are well-written bond women and there are poorly written bond women uh from russia with love is unfortunate dr no even is a little unfortunate ursula andres is gorgeous but she's basically there to get rescued by Bond and, and provide a little bit of helpful information. But look, Pussy Galore, Honor Blackman, who we didn't mention, was Kathy Gale in The Avengers starting in 1961. So before Dr. No came out, she's great. And I think the only sort of negative thing you can say about that movie, well, when it comes to Pussy Galore in that, is that Ian Fleming more so explicitly in the book, uh, maybe a little less so in the movie, but it's still there. You fall on this trope about how she is the tough, 
by the book lesbian character who then changes her mind because she's seduced by the irresistible James Bond. You know, that that's a little gross and it's a bit of a trope and it's a trope that hopefully we've left behind. But I feel like in the movie she is used very effectively and Honor Blackman just has strength and presence. And I love her in that movie. How can you not? I mean, I, that, that shot of uh, after Bond's knocked out and, you know, the, the camera's coming out of focus, the POV through his eyes, and it's just her holding a gun in his face. It's fantastic. It's funny, the other sort of... So when you have to split the Bond women also, there's also there's the main love interest... And then there's the character that I remember in the 80s, there was a book that had a chart of all the characters in the movie and was called the obligatory sacrificial lamb. Yeah. And that's usually that's usually the the woman in the movie who he falls for uh, early in the movie and then is killed usually as a plot device. Yeah. Um, Or it's the. um it's the henchman like pussy galore who bond seduces who then uh starts helping him and then for her help ends up being killed by our main bad guy because she she's betrayed the villain so she's got to die and that, you know it's another motivated kind of thing and yeah i guess most famously there's shirley eaton being painted gold in goldfinger as like the most obvious of the sacrificial lambs probably, but sure. And and, and I kind of like, I I kind of give him a little bit of a pass on that one only because I feel like at that point they were, they were finding their way. They were creating that iconic image. And that's the first time really that we use that trope in that movie. So it's like, like if we're going to give anything a pass, I, I give that one a pass. I feel like what you're talking about has been used sometimes a good effect, sometimes a very poor effect. And, and I would say later movies are almost worse at it than some of the earlier movies. So like Quantum of Solace, what a waste. Uh, I can never remember the character's name in it, but it, it is like we introduce a woman for Bond to be around for about five minutes and then we kill her and and she's covered in oil because oh we're just we're we're knocking off this shot from goldfinger and making it the opposite covering her in something black um yeah uh apparently my list i believe tells me she has the wonderfully bond woman name of strawberry fields oh god which goes along <laughs> with which go which falls yeah. right along with plenty o'toole and yep, yep. uh that's Probably uh, Lana Wood, uh, yeah. Natalie Wood's sister. In that yeah, role. Fatima, yeah, Fatima Bush. Zinia, yeah, Fatima Blush from yeah. uh, Never Say Never. Yeah, and then Zina on top, Anya top. Yeah. However, Zinia Z- yeah, fam- on a top, uh, played by Famke Janssen, who is good. Um, but yeah, I like. I am a fan of what I think is maybe not at the top of everyone's Pierce Brosnan list, which is uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. I think that movie is good in many respects. I, I like it way more than The World Is Not Enough. 
Um, I think we can all agree that Die Another Day is trash. Hopefully we can all agree on that. Um, but I think that they used Terry Hatcher to great effect as uh, Paris, Paris Carver. So um, basically the bad guy's wife in that. But you established that there was a relationship with Bond. So her death, I feel like, had some meaning and some heartbreak to it. Uh, the, it, it was actually something that that had weight. And I'm also a bit of a champion for what I feel like is an unfairly maligned early earlier Bond film. Uh, but The Man with the Golden Gun, uh, Maude Adams, that is our introduction to her. She, she, of course, was in two movies. She was Octopussy, and she was wonderful in that. But I honestly, it had been so long since I watched that movie, I was shocked because I didn't remember how she is just assassinated right there in public by Scaramanga. She, she's just sitting there, and Bond doesn't realize at first that she's dead. And I, I was I was shocked. I was like, oh, oh, oh my God, they, they actually killed her. And, and she's a character who has some depth, some complexity, and uh, this really you know, tragic obligation to Scaramanga. So we know it can't end well for her, but we're, we're hoping that she gets pulled out of this. And before we finish with Bond, I do need to give my obligatory, uh, since I have not said my favorite, my, my non-logical, uh, my non-logical favorites are still, um, Barbara Boucher and Joanna Pettit, who are Money Penny oh. and Bond's daughter, in casino and what I call the good casino royale that not everybody, that most people most people will not agree with but uh, I mean in in that movie and again they're both very capable you know they're again they're they're kind of very Mrs. Peel ish I guess and they're both capable but mm-hmm. certainly very fashion forward for being 1967 in that movie and they both you know get a chance to actually do stuff yeah amongst all the craziness of that movie yeah i I totally agree love them both and and since we did not mention lois maxwell as the original money penny just give give her a shout out for her 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 yeoman's duty as sort of always pining for bond and never i don't know if she ever actually had an action scene while she was money penny other than the once they started taking them out on location but I don't know if she ever actually had a, a set piece to speak of that I recall. Yeah, she, ne- yeah, she never did, and it, it, it's too bad. But I, I like that, you know, look, I, I take all the Bond movies uh, not as strict canon, because if you listen to Mission Log, you know that I hate that word anyway. Uh, but I, I like that Bond can just sort of continually reinvent itself, and, and uh, you find character and plot threads along the way. So I like the idea of Moneypenny getting a backstory where she was an agent in the field. That's introduced with the Daniel Craig movies, but I have no problem then of thinking about the Moneypenny that we met in the 60s and going like, yeah, she, she arrived at that job because she was doing this other thing. And she is capable, and she is smart, and she puts Bond in his place when she can. True. Uh, before we go, we do want to get some some quick Trek talk in. 
Although yeah. I'm very I'm very happy to be doing a pod on today of all days and having some Star Trek talk because uh, <laughs> enough enough talk about the other thing that's getting all the press today. Yeah, may the fourth be with you too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you I know you guys are chugging along on Mission Log. You are. You have like a season and change left at Deep Space Nine, but I just I did want to mention since you guys recently did what I think most people would call one of the better slash best episodes of Trek, and that's Far Beyond the Stars. Yeah, yeah, we we just did the we released that a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know that, that's a bit of a daunting task, um, and my. My takeaway is that it is not only one of Star Trek's finest moments, but it's simply just one of the best hours of TV, period. And I would say the same thing about Sitting on the Edge of Forever. There are certain episodes of The Twilight Zone I would say that about. It, it is just incredible, dramatic storytelling, no matter how you slice it. And I've actually, I have a friend who has never watched any Star Trek, and I was telling her about this episode, and I really want to encourage her to watch it, because I want to get that total outsider perspective, and just here, like, does it stand up, or am I, am I blowing this out of proportion, not, not out of proportion, but am I, uh, is my experience so vastly different because I know all of Star Trek that has led up to this moment? But as I said on the show, I feel like they, you know, that would have been the perfect ending for Deep Space Nine, quite honestly. It's like they should have read that script and said, nope, we'll save that for the finale. <laughs> but, yeah, that is for people, for people that have never seen I would say, yeah, if there's one episode probably of Deep Space Nine, there may be a handful of others that I like maybe more, quote-unquote, as a Star Trek fan because they're more Star Trek-y. But as sort of like just like – an absolute work of television to show somebody that is, that is, yeah, a great, great episode. Yeah, it, it, it truly is. I mean, I, I it, it's one of those where I feel like if you're not moved by it, you just don't have a heart, you know? Um, and we happen to do it at a time like the, the beauty and the tragedy of that episode is that it is always relevant it would have been relevant if they'd made it in the 60s. It was relevant when it came out in 1998. It was relevant the week we released that episode because that, I want to say the day before, or maybe, yeah, I think it was the day before the results from the Derek Chauvin trial uh, were were known. So uh, it's just intense, and, and it holds up to repeat viewings. That's an episode of Deep Space Nine that I had watched many times before um, and was no less moved by it watching it again. Definitely. Um, so as we wrap up, you guys also now ha over on, at Roddenberry have a new daily show. So why don't you give that a, a shout out before we go? Yeah, thank you for allowing me to be uh, crassly commercial on your show. Um, uh, Sci-Fi 5, I'm very proud of, and I would ask everybody in your audience to go check it out. Just go to podcasts.roddenberry.com because you can see the whole lineup there. But Sci-Fi 5, five days a week, daily, five-minute 
dives into science fiction history. And it's a lot of fun. I, I've got a handful of writers working on it with me and a handful of hosts. So you get a different combination practically each time. And I learn so much. Like as we record this, the episode that comes out tomorrow is about Dahlia Derbyshire, who was the sound editor, who was like this pioneer of electronic music, who mixed what you hear as the Doctor Who theme back in the 60s. And so learning just a, a little nugget like that of sci-fi history, I love, love, love. So um, we, we try to skirt that line between something you know about, like today as of our recording, it is Star Wars Day. So we did a little dive into why Disney sort of canonized that as Star Wars Day and, and what they have done to um, – start kind of building the hype around that as opposed to what we know as the Star Wars release day, which was May 25th, 1977. So we do the obvious stuff, and then we do the weird little stories you may not have heard of. So give us a look. Like I said, podcast.runberry.com. Uh, my shows like uh, Mission Log, Mission Log Live, uh, shows I produce like the Trek Files, Sci-Fi Five are there, and then and then other shows that uh, uh, I have nothing to do with. <laughs> so so go go find something else that you like too. I should say since you mentioned it, there are a number of documentaries that people can find on YouTube about Delia Derbyshire, and they yes. are great. Not only about her, but about the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and the amazing stuff that they were doing in the 60s with yeah. with physical tape and like stuff you won't I, I guess now for like a modern audience is sort of so mind-blowing that they probably would be like people did what with what and yeah. you, you hear yeah. the story about like again like the doctor who theme where they have these like yards and yards of of, of tape that were like strung out and doing stuff too right. and physical manipulation. And there's a great thing about like how a lot of the sounds that she used were things that like she remembered from her childhood yeah. that, you know, that became that she just dropped into stuff. And it's, it's amazing. And, and again, it's, it's funny to, for people that don't know the whole doctor who history about how, really different it was because it was produced by a woman the woman created the theme like the first director was of asian descent so it's it's like for for being such a very british show you know for being like 1963 it's probably a lot more diverse than people would would expect if they don't know so that's so yeah and she yeah. and she's part of that yeah yeah it, it's so cool and um, it, th those are the things that I love learning by doing this show, uh, just doing these little little quick trip deep dives into these topics. So um, we, we always make it uh, accessible. So it might be something that you already know about. But here's that one little bit of trivia you might have overlooked. Um, and you get to do it all in five minutes. So check it out. Sci-Fi 5. Yeah, definitely check it out. Check out Mission Log 2. John, thanks again for 
doing the show. I did not realize until I was setting this up that it was almost a year ago to the day that you were on last year. So we should probably. Oh man, was it really? That's it awesome. It was. It was like May seventh or something like that because we had just talked. I guess Picard had just ended. Wow. So we were, yeah, t- and that's yeah. and that's in season two now with. Uh, I guess are they still? It's still in production, I assume. Yeah, they're they're. I, I don't. I, I think they have already been rolling camera, and I think they're projecting sometime 2022. So I'm not sure exactly what the release schedule is going to be. All we know that right now the thing that is announced is Season 2 of Lower Decks will be starting on August 12th of this year. And then after that, some combination of Season 4 of Discovery, Season 2 of uh, Picard, Season one of Star Trek Prodigy, season one of Strange New Worlds. So that'll get us into, you know, late 2021, early 2022 and beyond. And I guess we do we officially know or is it only teased who will be in Picard season two? I know they certainly hinted at it in the season trailer, but is has is that official official or is that just a wink and a nod? I, you know what? I, I think with, with John Delancey basically going everywhere and saying, like, uh, I'm shooting it up for two seasons that, uh, OK, I, I guess we know that Q is back and uh, we'll be back for more, I, I guess. <laughs> so good on him. And as I said, maybe that means Q can give Picard his human body back as the uh, I, I'm in the camp of not necessarily liking the end of of Picard season one, but that's a topic for another day. So yeah, thank you. Thank, thank I, you. I think you and I might be aligned there. So I, I, yeah, I believe, we'll... I, I believe that's what I believe we, we agreed on that last time you were on. So thanks yeah, again. Yeah. Thanks again, John, for doing every show again, episode, that's everybody, good. this is episode 99 episode one, 100 with hopefully a very special guest star, a super special guest star will be coming out soon. So keep an eye out for that. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Mm